And now, welcome to another edition of Discourse, the Early Studies Project podcast on current events and scandals and all sorts of things that we are seeing now in the world. My name is Sidney Castillo. I'm going to host this uh, podcast. And with me, I have uh, Sierra Lawson and Chris Cotter, also from the RSP. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to be back. <laughs> yeah, indeed. After a long time, I mean, all this virtuality is still driving most of academic uh, work, but at least we have a video to show that we are alive and stuff. <laughs> exactly. So today we have like different topics that we are going to discuss. Some of them are focused on the recent holidays I went through, uh, namely... Latin America, we know it as Holy Week or Semana Santa, which would be the equivalent of Easter for the rest of the world, English-speaking world, and also Passover in Judaism, as we're going to discuss on part of the courtesy of Sierra. And then we will move on the discussion to two topics that are like a little bit uh, out of sight of this theme, but is related to controversies on public display of, of uh, religious allegiance or prayer in a, in a sports setting. And the other is one letter of a very angry <laughs> viewer or a, a reader of a UK uh, magazine about the program Dairy Girls, which I don't know anything about, but I'm sure Chris will be kind to give us some context on that. Absolutely. So, yeah. Just to briefly open the conversation. So recently we had um, Holy Week, or as, as I mentioned, Semana Santa, we know it. And this uh, week in Latin America that we commemorate or remember what is like pretty much the entering of Jesus to Jerusalem and uh, all of his percourse or like uh, walkthrough to different events that are within the Bible. Uh, all on, until his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, which is like uh, the cornerstones of belief and practice also uh, in the Catholic ritual and mass. And what happens in each day is it's, uh, there are like, it is not so much each day that happens something, but at least in observance, in a common mainstay in different Latin American countries is that we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, which is Domingo de Ramos in Spanish, and it symbolizes the entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And uh, we celebrate also Thursday and Friday, which usually Thursday is the day that we commemorate the Last Supper. And uh, so, but actually the dietary restrictions or like the different kind of food that you have to ingest is only reserved for Friday, because on Friday you are not supposed to eat any kind of flesh, or red meat, because Jesus has died at the end of a very painful process, as we have, uh, we all know some some way or the other. So you're not supposed to eat meat. And uh, then you have uh, Sábado de Gloria, or Saturday of Glory, as we call it, which is the vigil of the resurrection, and we are waiting for Jesus to manifest and resurrect. And finally, on Sunday, we have the Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what is, of course, uh, like a comeback triumph of Jesus from the dead. 
Nowadays, I think uh, it's safe to say that in Latin America and the last 25 years, so to speak, is this holiday, it's, it hasn't had so much the religious tone or observance that people used to have it in the generations of my grandparents, for instance. People were more kind of, uh, used to be more like quiet or keep to themselves or become more introspective to have kind of deeper conversations or like totally commit to silence, in, especially in Friday when Jesus died. So it, it used to be like that more solemn festivity and people used to gather to watch like a, lot, a bunch of uh, Bible movies from the 50s. I mean, everyone knows uh, Ben Hur with Charlton Heston and Ten Commandments as well and other famous movies of the period. But uh, so the practice were really like Holloway was really observant within the context of a family. And, uh, and this was throughout Peru, I, w- I would say the least. Of course, in the coast or in the cities, big cities like Lima is lived in a different way than, than in the rainforest part of Peru or also the Andes, because there are like uh, different ways for reenacting the Via Crucis or the journey of Jesus from Jesus, Judas' betrayal to his crucifixion. But uh, more or less it's the same. Nowadays, 25 years, last 25 years, as I mentioned, has changed a lot. I mean, people are not so much uh, religious or observe it as in a religious way, but more of a cultural Catholic way. So it's just an excuse to have holidays and people are happy that <laughs> it's holidays in the middle of April. So everyone is just eager to go out uh, of the city or have a short trip to like close by towns that you can see some of the folk traditions that are carried out there. And that's what I did as well. I went, I live in Tarapoto in San Martin region of Peru, but I went to Lamas, which is like the folklore capital of San Martin, this region. And because there's like a substantial amount of people that are from the Quichua, Lamista background, language, indigenous people. So they carry out more of the like folk traditions, so to speak. Uh, and they have their own way of like eating foods on Friday. For instance, I ate this kind of chonta tree, which is like a palm tree that you eat only the core and you're supposed to eat only that kind of uh, vegetable throughout Friday. And, and I had uh, like a different, different dishes with salad and uh, a stew. It was quite nice. But uh, in Ayacucho, uh, which is on the southern Andes part of Peru, there's another important celebration that they have. It's actually the second, world's second most important Holy Week celebration. The first one is in Sevilla, Spain. Uh, they really have like a, a lot of a lot of performances, folkloric performances, and uh, also the like the procession of the uh, Resurrection Sunday. It's quite quite. Uh, impactful, say the least, because it's a huge kind of, uh, how can I say, anda in Spanish is the name, like chariot or a kind of uh, the effigy of Jesus that is resurrected is huge. It's like it weighs, it weighs over 500 kilos and you, like there has to be at least 100 people carrying it. and uh, It's like tall as, uh, I, don't, I cannot remember, 10, no more than 10 meters. I have to show a picture of that, or I will attach a picture of that to the for the website. But it's quite in, impressive, and uh, you're supposed to stay until five, six a.m. when it when the sunrise happens, and 
it symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus, and this effigy starts to become transported towards the, towards the main plaza of the town. So you can find these kind of celebrations throughout Latin America. It's quite common, but as I mentioned, people just sometimes just go because of it's something that they identify themselves with as culturally rather than religiously. And I think this is a, a mainstream shift, especially for uh, young adults, uh, people from 20 to 35 years old nowadays. And uh, But this is how more or less how people live a uh, whole week in Latin America, and Peru specifically. So that's uh, that's one part of it. Yeah, it, it got me thinking um, just about how how localized um, tradition is, um, and I'm, I'm sure we could all start to you know Sarah um, in a US context and myself in, in the UK could start listing off all oh, these things happen, these things don't happen, um, but. Um, a, a question I would have for you is, is like how much, you know, Easter as I envisage it in the Scottish general landscape is, is, is not very visible at all. Um, it's much more visible to me, I suppose, a, with my religious studies scholar hat on, um, and B one of the other hats I have is I, I get paid to sing in churches. Um, so Easter, Holy Week is a quite uh, financially remunerative time for me because uh, there's a lot more singing. Um, but apart from that, it, it's you suddenly in shops, Easter eggs absolutely everywhere, um, <laughs> Easter bunny. Mm. Um, and this year, for the first time ever, I noticed it was Easter because the Open University mandates that you have the Friday and the Monday off work and that's just you, you have them <laughs> off so I took them off but I've never had that in my life before I've actually had a holiday around the time uh, so I just wondered how much of that sort of how much of the chocolate and bunnies and stuff <laughs> have you encountered <laughs> in Latin America and does that translate yeah, I mean, the chocolate and the bunnies, I think they are ubiquitous. You cannot really avoid it <laughs> because yeah. uh, it's like part of marketing and uh, supermarkets also import a lot of Easter bunny chocolates. Um, some of them, of course, are, I mean, of course, it's not a Peruvian thing or Latin American thing, but people consume it. And uh, I think it will be more, this will be more segmented in a way of a, a class. Uh, distinction, so to speak. So people are, actually can go to the supermarket and buy a Easter bunny egg or chocolate. They can, they of course will will do it, and they are more easy to find also in big urban centers or anywhere that has like kind of a supermarket or which this uh, this kind of product could reach. Even here, I mean, I, li- I live in rainforest, but this is a city, Tarapoto, and there is one supermarket. Actually, there is like several different chains, but you can find. Easter money paraphernalia and chocolates and stuff. I mean, people are not so, I mean, I would say that they are not so, they do not consume this as much as in the Northern Hemisphere, I would say. Because when I was living in Budapest, uh, in Hungary, they actually did consume a lot of Easter money. Uh, yeah, but uh, in here it's not, it's not so much. And I, I would say that people that live in urban centers in Lima, people from middle class towards up, it will, they will, Tend to consume more Easter bunny as well, or to find, or to do the game of finding the Easter bunny in the house. 
I only did that one in, once in my life, and it was with a relative that had some money. I mean, lived in a fancy place in, in Lima, but not in my house. And so, so that's that's mm-hmm. one part of it, I would say. Yeah, but it's yeah. more much more sure, more localized. And people consume things that are from the place rather than. Yeah. yeah, I think I could have probably gone for about a decade living in Scotland without really noticing Easter at all. But when you've got children now, suddenly our living room is full of chocolate eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone under the sun wants to buy them chocolate. Yeah, yeah. I think like the celebrations um, in Latin in like Catholic dominant Latin American countries being so localized is just. Um, really interesting as well like for instance like the Corpus Christi that happens a little later this year in Cusco happens you know along the same sort of um, calendar that the Inca Empire so you know that was the capital of Tuanetsuyu which is the Inca Empire so it's really interesting how localized elements you know in the Catholic calendar um, run up against each other into modernity and kind of what uh, traditions get preserved and you know how things adapt and um you know that's also definitely defined by public processions that have an entirely different tone than you know being in North Carolina right now um you, there is a significant um you know catholic community but the public demonstration of that catholic identity is um a little bit different than say Cusco or the passion plays in Mexico or all the really interesting different um, localized elements we see in Latin America. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was a really interesting example. I'm a little more familiar with um, different aspects of Holy Week in a colonial context, but I, mm-hmm. it's always interesting to read about it in the contemporary too. Yeah. And and I only learned, I was this week years old when I learned that, you know, the, the Orthodox Church Easter is this coming Sunday. Yeah. Uh, that mind blown. I just, you know, assumed that was a universally agreed constant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, things we assume to be constant being a little bit contingent to uh, mm-hmm. things like calendars, which are, you know, social constructs, um, it, this was such a uh, flourishing week with religious traditions for us to talk about. And so I thought I'd bring in um, some perspectives on Passover. So, um, I think especially living in North Carolina, it's really interesting to see how, um, certain adaptations were made to, um, Passover dinner. So my friend, Justine Orlovsky Schnitzler, um, she writes for Edith magazine and, you know, a few other venues sometimes. And she sent me over this, um, post about Michael Twitty, who writes about, um, African, African-American and African diasporic identity and food and being black and Jewish at the same time, I'm teaching a unit on being Black and Jewish for a Jewish studies class. And so, um, you know, and I'm constantly thinking about how food is, is an extremely powerful metaphor for identity and especially the Passover plate. You know, for a long time in Judaism in the United States, there was a saying that, you know, let les- lesbians belong in Judaism like bread at the cedar plate. You know, that's a way of kind of saying they don't belong because there's no uh, leavened bread at the cedar plate. So... Um, I was just really interested in how people like Michael Twitty have been bringing um, black soul food into their Seder meals and the different symbolisms that can line up with sort of traditional readings of, um, you know, the metaphors associated with this food, but also 
<clears throat> make space for a little bit of a less um, narrow and possibly essentialized definition of what Jewish identity looks like represented through food. So, you know, the same way there's no right way really to celebrate Semana Santa or Easter, right? There's no one way to be Catholic, as we'll talk about with Dairy Girls, right? Uh, there's no sort of trans-historical necessary way to represent yourself in, in sort of that kind of meal. Of course, in traditional Judaism, you're not going to replace anything at the Seder plate. So this is, you know, very um, particular context we're talking about. So I just thought that was uh, an interesting thing to teach with. And um, yeah, I think it was also quoting uh, Rabbi Lawson talking about who I'm not related to at all, um, but discussing sort of uh, her perspective in North Carolina on the making space for Judaism and blackness and one identity. Um, so yeah, uh, I don't know if that evoked any thoughts for you guys or, um, yeah. Yeah. I oh, know. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the first thing I would have to say is, uh, <laughs> this is my Edinburgh first year religious studies. Um, they, I think the course, I can't remember if it was called Lived Religions or something, you know, the World Religions 101. And I think they did, you know, various combinations. But the, the Judaism section um, ended up being much more material focused than the like Islam and Buddhism sections. They all had a very different kind of theoretical angle to them. And so the students just sort of came away with this idea that Jews love food. Jews love food and, and like, because there was so much teaching material about Jews and food and and as the uh, I guess tutor dealing with the mediating of the teaching material and the reading material I was there you know, everyone loves food atheists <laughs> love food too and so do Muslims so just because the readings focused on Jewish food practices does not mean that Jews are um uncharacteristically more obsessed with food than any other tradition, but they, they always right. came away with this, like, oh yeah, Jews and food, it's just like, it's ingrained, isn't it? And you're like, no, no, it's a human practice. So that's right. something I, I have to make sure I get in there every time the topic of Judaism and food comes up. Um, yeah, it's such a fine line, I think, teaching about Judaism, where you're trying to undo this Protestant hegemony of the idea that religion is strictly interior belief, but you're also running up against the possibility that you might be essentializing Judaism as a, an earthly religion of the body. And so like, you have to make space um, for all kinds of different critical dynamic thinking. But, you know, I will say UNC is, is not a Jewish dominant school. And, you know, I've, I've run into similar issues where you're talking about dietary restrictions and you're talking about establishing a covenant with God and uh, circumcision. And, and they, they kind of get this weird perspective that you're not trying to reinforce by talking about the body um, yet, you know, because of dominant discourses in the United States on what religion looks like, it might end up, you might end up overcorrecting at times, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's always a risk, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I also, um, again, with the the church singing, so the the the, and I'm I'm not a practicing anything, but um, the the church that I was singing at on Monday Thursday decided to stage a a seder meal as part of the the service, um, and it was a very interesting. I mean, it was lovely, and people participated and had a good time, but they obviously added in various 
Christian interpretations into things whilst also seemingly following a fairly traditional um, script at the same time, but then added in a few extra little bits. And I was definitely sitting there with my ethnographer hat on going, hmm, I wonder where this repurposing came from. Is it idiosyncratic to the the minister here or is it a sort of broader thing? Um, but it was it was nice. But again, also felt a little bit like appropriation at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I think there's been cases of like Jewish communities not being able to buy matzah because Christian communities in the US, I saw, you know, a few experiences posted of, um, yeah. yeah, increasing. Yeah, I think it's it's not idiosyncratic to that oh. space, I, w- I would say. It's um, a broadening as as popular as you know, gender reveals are becoming. This is apparently becoming something popular in a particular Christian space. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, I don't know if you. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have anything particularly on. It was just you know interesting to see the the repurposing and reimagining of things, but but also that will have always been the case from the first time the ritual was instantiated in any shape or form there will have been those localized cultural elements and these things take on the flavors of the cultures within which which they take place exactly yeah i, I one comment of the michael tweety that uh, i read is like he equiparates because you're supposed to reflect uh, when people are at the passover meal and having the seder plate you're supposed to reflect on the struggle or read the, narrate the struggle of uh, the tale of Exodus, uh, and uh, you're and he equated this as uh, the struggle also of black uh, African Amer or African Americans in the United States and how they were brought from like uh, from the slave trade to to the new world. And so this was an interesting parallelism and it speaks of how well tradition, of course, as, as we we know it's it's never something that is fixed, uh, but rather it's quite dynamic, and it's uh, re semanticized by the people that lived it in everyday life. And this is one perfect example of that. And uh, yeah, that, that that came to mind, and I immediately was drawn to my Michel Sartor readings back from 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 my from my first explorations in social theory and religious studies theory. But that was was quite a nice, quite a nice read, and also the the plates really looked tasty. So I mm. I might want, want to, I mean I never tried what they call soul food, but uh, or this but this kind of uh, way of cooking it's it it sounded very similar to what we in Peru here also eat. You know, with a lot of spices, or some sometimes you eat fried. Uh, fried foods, deep fried foods. It depends where you are as well. And uh, so, yeah, that they sounded very quite tasty. So I might try try them cooking. Uh, maybe I won't be successful, but taste somehow the taste is just like the spices that they use is quite quite similar to what we use here. So that's nice. Mm. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time. I should, we should probably keep pressing on. Um, 
so my my story is is not the first one's not from a, a, a UK context. It is from a US context, and I have to thank Daniel Jones on uh, Facebook for um, having shared this story. But it um, it's about the, the US Supreme Court um, on the twenty fifth of April, so four days after we're recording, are, are taking on a case where there's a, a high school uh, American football coach from. Bremerton High School, just west of Seattle, named Joe Kennedy, and um, he. This dates back to 2015, so the case is just coming um, to the Supreme Court on the 25th of April. And for six seasons, this coach had been um, saying a prayer on the 50 yard line at the at the end of games, um, the high school football team, and. Um, after six seasons, you know, a, a complaint was was raised at some point, and then the Bremerton School District um, decided to to tell him to desist from um, engaging in prayer. Um, and then, because of the it, it, his pushback against that and continuing to to do so or to wish to do so, um, it's now made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's a sort of classic case of First Amendment um, freedom of expression versus um, promotion or establishment of, of religion and so on. Um, so we, you know, we could, we could circle around all the perhaps standard issues that we, that we might circle around with this, but it's interesting just in the article that we'll be sharing, it is just the, the different ways in which it's described by opposing uh, sides in the debate. Some of them say that, well, you know, it's an individual um, stopping for 30 seconds to a minute um, at the side of a pitch. It's their own individual practice. They could just be picking up a contact lens, was what someone said. Um, so, you know, what what's the problem with this? Um, and that brings up all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, what is it that makes it a prayer? Um um, and why is it problematic in that space? You know, how do we know that this individual is praying? Are they doing various symbolic actions that make it marked out as a prayer? Or what makes it different from going down on your knees to try and find a contact lens, right? So there's a lot of interpretation going on there. Um, and there's the context as well. So as an individual with a position of power and in quite a visible public space engaging in this. So if they were doing it, in the changing rooms or something, it would perhaps be different. Um, but then on the flip side, there are groups, you know, saying, you know, yes, this individual has power. Uh, the players and, and so on will be will feel pressured because sometimes people would join in. You know, they'll be feel pressured to join in if they don't subscribe to that. If the Satanic Temple attempted to do the same thing, which they threatened to do. Um, on the touchline as well, you know, would that be as permitted or is this because it is a, because it is the locally hegemonic tradition that it is being allowed. Um, so it, it just, it throws up all sorts of issues. And, and, and perhaps worth saying that Donald Trump stepped in to say that he thought that it was absolutely fine and the guy should continue praying. Um, so I don't know whether that would make you agree or disagree, but uh, um, thoughts. I think uh, the establishment clause 
is also worth maybe talking about here where public institutions can't establish religion in the United States. And so it's really interesting that, you know, uh, is he, you know, there's disagreement in this article between members of the community about whether or not this counts as the, um, the school district effectively establishing a religion or not, uh, which I always find really interesting as a um, state employee in the United States, you mm-hmm. always got to be mindful in these public institutions of, uh, you know, describing and not prescribing, but those two things are quite related at times, perhaps not as clearly as they are in, in, in some ways they could be read in this article. Right. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I thought his uh, saying that he heard God in the car ride home, telling him what to do was an interesting um, moment. I, uh, there's so many different parts of this that I think could be unpacked. And definitely, you know, um, is it a collective or is there a collective influence of this one person's ritual act or is it an exterior manifestation of an interior state? Um, or are they just picking up a contact lens and it's a secular act, right? It's there's so mm. many different layers to yeah. this entire this entire situation. Um, so this is a great article. Thanks yeah. for yeah putting it up. Cause, yeah, because it's like the you know what is at stake. You know, part of me just sort of bangs my head in the table and goes, you know, who cares? What does this? You know, what does it matter? This individual's doing that. It's not hurting anyone, not harming any. But but then that's from my perspective where that is seen as uh, not such a harmful act, but if it was another tradition with an ideology that was perhaps perceived as more threatening to the dominant social norm, um, I would make a difference as well. Uh, but also what other, what other ritual acts or, or norms are not being commented on here. Like as soon as the word religion is brought into it, then it becomes problematic. But in terms of, you know, high school football teams, presumably there'll be, you know, there might be cheerleaders involved here and there's all sorts of norms and rituals and strange social practices that are being normalized with that. There'll be for the people on the team, there'll be appearance regimens and exercise regimens and and honor codes and all sorts of things that they have to subscribe to and of course there's the national anthem and pledges of allegiance and and all of that and none of these are considered problematic it's this one area that is singled out and so it, it, it yeah just why is this being discussed at all um raises questions yeah, it was a great article. Thanks for sharing it also, Chris. I, yeah, I was also about to comment on what Sierra mentioned on the, that when the, the guy heard God and he felt compelled to go to and do the praying in the middle of the field. I don't know, immediately that uh, kind of made me think about uh, Daniel Luhrmann's theory of, uh, theory of mind or like how mm. God becomes um, and she conceptualizes as uh, kindling, and actually that's the part of the title of her latest book, "How God Becomes Real." Uh, so it, I, he mentions a little bit of his journey through Christian, like Christianity, and being a marine, and then uh, like watching this film, uh, like facing the giants, I think, which is a Christian mm-hmm. movie as well, in the context of football. So it kind of, uh, he, the guy convinced himself or like he felt the calling of doing this kind of 
like a very short ritual of praying in the middle of the field. So it, it's, it's like, uh, I think it's great part of, of course, it's not so, it's not discussed in depth in the article because it's not the focus of it. But I think it's like a, this kind of everyday practices of prayer and also to commend oneself to another entity or supernatural agent, so to speak. Uh, became becomes effective so much so that you can uh, can hear the voice of someone or something that compels you to make this kind of acts and uh, just this kind of like a very public display of playing in the middle of the field of their game is just a consequence of this kind of recurrent practices that, that happens in one's private life and probably in the church setting as well but uh, I see that as that and so it's like kind of a Consequence must, but not a cause, so to speak. So it's interesting mm. to see that it's so much alive. This kind of a, a, a really close relationship with uh, what they think, what people think as God or uh, spirits or things like that, which also you can see in many other religious settings. You know? So mm. uh, with more more emphasis, less emphasis, but it's it's there. It's part of uh, human sociality and, and human condition. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, like what isn't being called into question as being normalized? Like I'd be curious to see, you know, not genuinely, but just for the sake of conversation, if there's a local business, you know, sponsoring their jerseys and how that's, you know, capitalism is never um, being questioned in these situations, just like sort of heteronormative kind of gender norms are are pretty um, accepted in this space. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting example. In many ways, good. Um, uh, we're—I don't know, Sydney. Time's coming up, but I just want to—I'll just quickly comment on on the other. So there's there's two little articles about Derry girls. Um, one's a letter to the editor, um, complaining about blasphemy in the program, the use of um, Jesus's name. Um frequently as a swear word and uh the other is um about the uh conspicuous lack of a british flag in in a in a particular scene in, in a recent episode so just just for context dairy girls is broadcast um on channel four in in the uk uh, but it's set in Derry slash london dairy in northern ireland it'll depend which quote community unquote you come from whether you call it Derry or London Derry um and it's set during the 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 90s so sort of towards the tail end of the troubles as we would euphemistically call it um and it's a comedy program um I would describe it as if you're anyone's familiar with Father Ted um it's in a similar sort of headspace I suppose with a, a dominant Catholic Irish culture um, being quite irreverently treated, um, but in a way that is like just from my own lived experience and lived experience of others uh, from the island is profoundly relatable and quite just quite well studied and kind of warm at the same time. Um, and and what I feel that the program 
both of those programs do, but we're talking about Derry Girls here, is, is you know, Catholicism is there. It's a constant theme throughout, and there, the, the school's um, a Catholic institution with uh, nuns uh, doing the teaching and priests heavily involved and so on. Catholicism is really embedded in it, but it, it's not the focus. And it's clearly something that's not treated with massive amounts of respect, but also is at the same time. It's like a constant pressure, constant presence, but it's just part of part of life, um, which I've, is what I really enjoy about it. And you know, whilst yes, the language is is foul um, to many ears, so it'll probably put some people off. Um, it's incredibly enjoyable. Um, so yes, but the, the 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 letter to the editor was saying, you know, but twenty thirty years ago, people would this wouldn't have been allowed on television with all this blasphemy and so on. And what does this say about our so called Christian society and so on? Um, obviously, I don't know whether it was a, it's a real letter or a farcical letter. Who knows? But there were all those notions of you know Christian nation in there, and I would say Dairy Girls with that complete embeddedness of it and with the total threading through language of just um, using um, religious terminology in derogatory ways and so on, it is indicative of, it is depicting a time when Catholicism was, and indeed in some communities still is, highly embedded. And that, and that is perhaps a more religious society than one that would balk at there being any um, use of um, Jesus Christ as a swear word um, on television. Um, I don't know. I, I believe, Sierra, you, you've you've seen the program. Um, how does it translate in, a, <laughs> in your context? I, I adore that program because, you know, if, if this person's upset that they're using Jesus as a curse word, I don't know what they're going to think when dog urine is thought to be the tears of Mary coming down as a miracle. Like this show is hilarious. And it's, I, I, I honestly turned it on for the first time and thought it was contemporary because um, here it's streamed on Netflix and they have, you know, so much money that they have these like very overproduced characters most of the time that have, it's just an interesting, you know, Shows for binge watching are a little have a little bit more of a different vibe here. So I didn't realize it was set in the '90s until um, maybe like three episodes in, and you know I'm probably dozing off. And then once I started to understand what it was actually about and um, why the moms are having the conversations with the girls and kind of like just different things. There's one episode where they're with a boys' school and they're rock climbing and. Um, yeah, anyways, none of that has to do with critically engaging with what you just put on the table, but it's just a great show. And if, if someone's not comfortable with Jesus's name being used in that way on the show, there's so many other, um, (laughs) great examples where I, I I don't know that they watched the whole thing. They must've just been flipping through the channels and Mm -hmm. saw that part. Um, yeah. 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 Offended by, but yeah, it is just, you know, as I say, it's the tail end of the of the troubles but that, that's it's the time when i was growing up in northern ireland and like yeah it, it's just you know regularly you would just be like oh we can't go down that road because there was a bomb okay we'll go down this and it was just so normalized um that it it, it didn't raise eyebrows you know regularly having your star your car stopped by armed um 
police or army officers to inspect your uh inspect the car in case you were smuggling people or whatever and stuff it was just normal um uh, it's a complete world away but the program does a good job of just making it a real context without yeah. any of that being at the forefront so it's it's nice right just uh, reminded me a little bit uh, what uh, controversies happened with one of my favorite shows, South Park. In, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, of course, in the United States, but also when it was when we had the dubbed Spanish, Latin American Spanish, which I think it was done by a Venezuelan company. I mean, it was quite, quite good. I mean, <laughs> you cannot, uh, even the voice acting and the blasphemies were all over the place, of course. Very, very loyal to the source material, but uh, they were only on online on cable televisions, so, and few people had cable television when South Park, uh, the dub version, was broadcasted in Peru at least. So end of nineties, early two thousands, and it just became massified later on. But uh, but yeah, it's it's and over there, of course, it's also blasphemy everywhere. I mean, they don't. <laughs> they don't respect anyone. That that's what makes it so fun. I imagine this is the case also with this program, but it just uh, to, it just goes to how to show that, uh, yeah. I mean, you can make comedy of religion, and uh, of course, people are going to be offended because it touches on values, um, kind of like uh, outlooks, worldviews. But uh, the, this letter was one case that I would expect to see something written towards South Park as well, because it mentions yeah. something about Judgment Day. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, what we what will we say on Judgment Day when we all have to appear before him, before God, of course, blame someone else and say it was funny? Yeah, so that was like a kind of, um, yeah, you can, you can do so much with this small paragraph as well, just to comment on that and <laughs> how these kind of deep entrenched values and uh, views are like react towards things that happen in the outside world. Yeah, it, it's like, it was kind of a fun letter. It was short, but short but sweet. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, and I think in the US, Family Guy is the most well-known Protestant Catholic dynamic shown in a um, TV show, or that would be my guess. Like, there's, there's really not much talk of diversity in Christianity. I don't think in television in the United States, um, it's, it's much more subtle. Like Lois in um, Family Guy is is one one of the only times that I can think that it's like emphasized throughout an animated TV show, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was one episode, I think. Well, in Family Guy, I think there was this episode. Oh, it was an episode in South Park that were part of the Family Guy, and they were part yeah. of the fact that they could not, they were going to depict uh, Prophet Muhammad in the cartoon, and it was uh, such a mess. And even the Comedy Central, had, which is the broadcasting company of South Park, had some uh, like death threats and stuff. <laughs> but uh, in previous episodes of South Park, you, there was like a Super Best Friends episode, which were like uh, all the prophets of world religions, or most of them, it was Jesus Muhammad depicted properly uh, Lao Tzu and Joseph Smith from the Mormons and um, yeah and Aquaman for some reason and uh, it was like yeah and he had a sidekick that I cannot repeat his name but just google it uh, it's super fun episode and like yeah I mean 
yeah, religion wasn't depicted so bad. I mean, they were having fun, just like I think it depends on how you like uh, kind of in which time also you release the episode because this Family Guy parody episode Sarper was after 9/11 and after this Danish cartoon uh, terrorist attack. I don't know in which year it was, but yeah, yeah, it was way later after that. So mm-hmm. you cannot hurt that those susceptibilities anymore. Yeah, so we uh, like it was it was a, it was time really passed by really fast. So we set out to talk to some few topics, but that's how it goes with release studies scholars. We like to talk, especially if we are given the opportunity to do so uh, about a topic that we love uh, or that we are working on. Uh, not specifically what we are working on right now, but other things. <laughs> it's more fun to talk about those things. But anyhow, I thank um, Chris and Sierra for being here in today's episode of Discourse at the RSP. And we hope that we have another chance to talk about these subjects some more. So thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Celine. Bye-bye. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.